Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oxford Policy Podcast. My name is Denise Salazar, an Ecuadorian MPP student here at the Blavacne School of Government. Today, I feel tremendously honored to be able to host Mariana Lucio, a Mexican lawyer who is also studying the Master's in Public Policy and who has vast experience in gender equality and human rights protection. Mariana will join me in one of the most pressing and also delicate discussions we have in Latin America, and not to say Mexico. That is gender violence. For you to have an idea, in Mexico every year, almost 3,000 women and young girls are assassinated. National surveys have also shown that approximately 70% of women have suffered gender violence, while the 39% comes from their partners. In 2022, a 14-year-old girl got kidnapped in front of her mother while going to school. And seven months later, her body was found on a hill in Michoacán. This is, of course, the tip of the iceberg. These are only the stories that could be shared. With that in mind, Mariana, can you please tell us what is it to be a woman in Mexico? The floor is yours. Welcome. Hello, Denise. Thank you so much for opening a space to discuss such a pressive topic in this podcast. I believe that international attention should be brought to this issue and hopefully our voices in this space can trigger more actions. So thank you for this space. Um, back to your question. Even though I am a Mexican woman, I cannot speak on behalf of all of us. I must accept that I am a very privileged woman and even though I have faced gender-based violence, my experience does not necessarily reflect the reality of all women. So for instance, when I was a teenager, I suffered sexual abuse. However, my parents never questioned my experience, believed me, and provided me with all the support that needed, whilst uh, in reality, a vast number of girls and teenagers who suffer this kind of violence are discredited by their own families. So as you can see, I was a very privileged woman. Yeah, wow. However, um, as you may know, context matters, as, as you are aware, being a woman is not a universal experience, but instead is cross-cut by many factors such as ethnicity, poverty, religion, age, social uh, class, etc. I'm, al I'm almost certain that all Mexican women have suffered at least one kind of gender-based violence. However, not all of us would accept the vulnerability implied when accepting you were a victim. Notwithstanding, my experience as a privileged Mexican woman living in Mexico City is far different from the experience of a Mexican woman living in Michoacán, a state that in reality is controlled by the organized crime. So, for instance, my daily reality has provoked me a defense mechanism when, I don't know, like hanging out with my friends for a drink. Will I come back home safe? Will I be raped by my friends if I get drunk? Oof. Machismo has allowed men to believe they are entitled to our bodies and on a daily basis women are disappeared when trying to get back home and unfortunately many times found dead. Adding to the statistics you, sh uh, statistics you share, 10 to 11 women are victims of feminicide on a daily basis. So you would agree with me that it is a legitimized fear. Um, however, and as I mentioned before, context matters. matters. Migrant women who come from South America, for instance, take birth pills before crossing the Mexican border as they know for sure that policemen will rape them. Women in states controlled by the narco are more likely to be trapped in networks of trafficking of women for sexual exploitation, and women in militarized contexts are more likely to be tortured by the, by the military forces. What I'm trying to say is that gender-based violence is a reality for all women in Mexico. However, we do not live it in the same way. Yeah, agree, and I think that's a very powerful ending. Um, I actually believe, like, the class, it's, um, I think, one of the most important factors to analyze when it comes to gender violence. But um, in relation to that, would you explain to us the type of 
gender violence that prevail in Mexico? And what are the underlying factors that keep perpetrating it? Um, sure, Denise, interesting question. So, for instance, in accordance to the international obligations on human rights, Mexico has recognized in law different types of violence against women. So we have psychological, physical, patrimonial, economic, sexual, and feminicide violence that can be perpetuated in different spaces, such as the domestic workplace, academics, um, community, institutional, and political spheres. So, for instance, if you're a student facing sexual harassment by your professor, you might be living sexual violence in the academic sphere. It is important to highlight that the recognition of these types of violence was a huge step for our country. However, the duty to grant all women the right of a life free of violence is still a pending task. Um, let me stop you there because I want the audience to know um, the legal definition of feminicide because, as you may know, like this is a, a controversial controversial um, dialogue that we have, for example, in Ecuador and I can say Mexico as well or Latin America. Why don't we just call this homicide? Why feminicide? <laughs> can yeah. you explain us? Well, first of all, it was a very, um, you know, it took a lot of years for Mexican, mm -hmm. for the Mexican state to recognize feminicide as a crime okay. that is different from homicide. Yes. So we must differentiate it. So feminicide is actually the violent murder against women for gender reasons. And this is very important. Mm -hmm. There is a sexist threat under, that underlies in this kind of uh, crime. So, for instance, if I were robbed and then shot it and I would die in that moment, that would be considered as a homicide because mm -hmm. there is no gender threat in this yeah. uh, crime. But if, for instance, I am murdered after, I don't know, cheating my husband and then I'm murdered by him, there underlies a gender reason. There underlies some sexism on how women should act. So there is a cross-cut conversation on the gender roles. And that is why I have been like... Murder. I'm not saying it was my fault, but that uh, it's the underlying reasons of gender roles that are different from a homicide. Yeah, that was very clear. I get it. Thank you. So please continue. Uh, with what yeah, you're no, saying. no, sure. I <laughs> know <laughs> it's fine. So what I was trying to say is that mm -hmm. even though these types of violence are forbidden by law, and as you uh, as you mentioned, there are some factors that keep perpetuating it. The roots are really convoluted, and thus the response and solution is a complex one. However, we must admit that there is still a predominant macho culture in Mexico that facilitates a mindset to undermine women's equal status in our society. Indeed, many people in Mexico, and I guess in Ecuador as well, and mm -hmm. all over the world, still yeah. deny that violence against women exists against all data. So furthermore, well, um, at least in Mexico, the impunity and lack of enforcement of law contributes to an environment where people believe they are allowed to treat women that way. Yeah. So the political response also lacks the will of, um, to protect us and society, including institutions, still perpetuate gender roles that harm women. And adding on that, I'm changing a bit the subject. Um, I, I remember that a while ago we were discussing in class, well, after class, I was talking <laughs> to you, uh, and you said to me that um, domestic violence was one of the prevailing figures of you know, violence in Mexico. And I'm very interested in that. And as you may know, as a lawyer, domestic violence used to be a private matter meaning that the state did not have the possibility to intervene. But now that it has, how would you qualify or label the role of the Mexican state in this? What is to be done? Um, indeed, we have that conversation. And indeed, Kate Millett was a revolutionary when she stated that the personal is political. Yeah. So what she meant is that, well, at least for domestic violence, what it means is that previously, the state thought that domestic violence was a private problem between couples and had no inference uh, allowing precisely the private sphere. 
However, the most reported crime in Mexico is domestic violence. So we could not accept anymore the lack of intervention of the state in this issue, especially since, unfortunately, many times this kind of violence leads to feminicide. Mm -hmm. We're not safe in our most private sphere, which makes it a political and public issue. Agree. When reporting these crimes, policemen and prosecutors still tell the victim, what did you do to provoke your husband? Did you, didn't you prepare his dinner? We will not take this report since you will forgive him eventually against gender roles um, harming us. As if, as if it was our responsibility being not violated. So I'm not exaggerating. These are the kind of responses from authorities. I even remember a case studied by my former boss, who was a judge, uh, when an indigenous woman reported several times domestic violence because her husband would hit her every time he was drunk. He was drunk all almost all the time. So, mm -hmm. In one occasion, the authority replied to her, Women, if we arrest him, who will provide you economically? And didn't file the criminal report. So as you can see, even though it is now a public issue and recognized by law, there is, a, there is a still a huge gap to overcome. However, I believe that women networks are playing a huge role now. I have witnessed how women support each other to overcome violent relationships, provide shelter, support, listen, sorority. These kind of practices between women are keeping us safer. And even there is a feminist motto in Mexico, amiga, hermana, si te pega, no te ama, mm. which means friend, sister, if he hits you, he does not love you. Love should never hurt. And Mexican women are fighting fiercely to dismantle the belief that we should carry the burden of violence, especially in our most private sphere, where we are supposed to trust the person you love. Wow, that was beautiful. And honestly, I also agree that sometimes, or in this case, most of the times, only women can save women. Mujeres a la mujer. I honestly believe sure. in that. Yeah. Um, do you have a story that can make us deeply understand this idea? Um, sure, but instead of sharing a personal story, I, which I indeed have, I would like to take this opportunity to dip a little more on this kind of violence. So it is very easy to blame a woman for accepting a violent partner, for not escaping from him. And society still thinks that it is a matter of she is a woman that who does not love herself, yeah. when in fact violence is even more complex than that. Yes. So nobody accepts prima facie a violent partner. Mm -hmm. There is a metaphor that explains it, and I love this one, is if you want to cook a frog, you don't boil the water and when it's hot, you throw the frog in it because it will help to escape. So what you, what you do is put the frog in the water and heat it a little by little until it gets used to the water and doesn't escape. And that's how violence works. It escalates little by little, it entangles you, and when you least realize it, you are trapped and escape is not an easy task. There is a lot of manipulation, isolation, social pressure because of this gender rule that women must be in a couple. And let's not forget that in many contexts, there is an economic dependence of women okay. uh, for men. So... Where do we escape if we don't have nowhere to go? Where are we going to live if a man supports us economically? Where do we take our children? So all of these factors plus an internalized guilt and grief inhibit women from seeking help. And unfortunately, when we do seek help, the response from the authorities is revictimizing. Can we still blame women for living domestic violence after what I said? I don't think so. And here I disagree with Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. You foolish man yeah. who laid the guilt on woman, not seeing you are the cause of the very thing you blame. Wow, that was brilliant and specifically like so touching. I want to uh, move forward a bit. Uh, I mean, I would love to dip into that, specifically into manipulation, which I think, yeah. you know, as women, we understand about that. 
But um, I want to kind of understand the factors that perpetuate gender violence. And I think the media is one of them. When I was in uni, I had a class called Sociology of Communication, and we particularly studied the notions around how women are portrayed using this famous male gaze, and we analyzed lots of Mexican cases. When you're Latino, you grew up perhaps watching telenovelas, specifically Mexican telenovelas. <laughs> there are a lot over there. Uh, you know, when the woman Indeed. is poor and the rich guy comes in and rescues her. I remember like, Maria del Barrio, Marimar, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you know, this person, this rich guy comes in, he gives her the opportunity of becoming part of the high society, in which, of course, I mean, this person, this girl needs to follow some rules. You're not like, representing this rich family. You need to be a good girl, a fine young girl. Hmm. So how do you think the Mexican media is influencing perceptions and responses to gender violence? Do you think the media has some agency to address this issue? Um, really interesting question, and indeed true. I do believe that media has some kind of uh, manipulation or um, influence in the perception of the response to gender violence. So actually, media shapes our perspectives and the values of society. And as a matter of fact, both nurture each other simultaneously. So we were raised with such bombing on how women should behave, and the standard is just impossible to meet. Mm -hmm. We have to be attractive, but not that, that attractive, because then it's your fault being harassed. Mm -hmm. We must be quiet, but not so much, because then you're not interesting. You must be smart, but not, not that much, because men do not like being threatened. So novelas, soap opera, operas for those who do not speak Spanish, mm -hmm. were centered in the idea that the only aim of women is to be married. Like, we did not have any other aspirations of life. Like, men naturally belong to the public sphere, and us women only were born to be someone's wife. Yeah. Then somehow it shaped a society where women were only pursuing how to get a man. And I'm not saying that having a partner is, in life is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that we are more complex characters than the male gaze reflects us, as you mentioned. Now, this idea has someone shifted, and I don't know about you, but my sense is that before, women were characterized as submissive, and now we're kind of a superwoman, empowered, that can do everything, everywhere, all at the same time, while staying sexy all of the time. Yeah. And I do not agree with this version either. It is an impossible standard to meet as well. And I really don't know which is worse. I mean, I don't know if I prefer to be like the superwoman, you know, who can be sexy, smart <laughs> and all that, or like this massive woman that who's also just crying, like don't, wanting a man. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> I know. Don't you feel like sometimes you're unchained into yes. one box of how a woman should behave? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but even digging a little deeper, have you noticed how media has romanticized a culture of violence through narco stories, stories sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, women high, are hypersexualized and men are the heroes who overcome their narco enemies. What mm -hmm. these stories forget to tell is the story of the victims of the narco, and which has led actually a very violent scenario for our countries. Uh, however, this is another conversation, but just to be fair, like yeah. women, when they are pictured in these narco stories, we are like, mm -hmm. you know, hypersexualized and they forget us that we are also you know, trafficking um, for sexual exploitation, so. 100%, and I completely agree. There's, uh, actually, there's a new, this new um, Netflix series called Griselda, I know you've heard of it. Yeah, Featured by Sofia Vergara, and this story tells us how she created one of the most profitable cartels in history. While well, looking uh, sexy at the same time. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, yeah ex exactly. Like, what it specifically tries to tell us is, is like the equilibrium between, you know, how to be a businesswoman and also a family woman and a sexy woman, of course, because Sofia Vergara is like that. Yeah, well, yeah. that's why they try to portray, you know. Um, so anyway, I really do not understand why the media keeps choosing these type of stories. I assume it's because the narco culture embodies sexiness when it comes to women. 
Um, but let's talk about it in another episode. You're gonna be invited <laughs> to talk about narco <laughs> yeah, we should culture, speak about that. women, yeah. sexiness, and all that. But yeah. moving forward, <laughs> um, I would like to know more about what the civil society is doing in Mexico. Do you have any example of a civil society intervention in a gender violence case that has changed the way it is assessed in Mexico? Oh, this is a great opportunity in to... In Mexico. In Mexico, yeah. I <laughs> said always at Mexico. That's <laughs> yeah, my political so, yeah, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Mexico. Mexico, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, actually, this is a great opportunity to illustrate the important role of civil society in Mexico. So, I could name a best of examples, but I will just focus on a very strong example. So, Mexico is currently leaving a wave of violence that has led to more than thousand hundred of people disappeared, unfortunately. Now, it is important to mention that most of the disappeared people are men. Wow. However, something very unique has happened. Most of the people who are looking for their missing relatives are women. And most of the collect collectives um, made up of, are made up sorry, of searching mothers. So these mothers are searching for their relatives all over the country. It hurts to say it, but Mexico is a cemetery with thousands of corpses hidden. These corpses were once someone's beloved, and their families are still seeking for them. They want to know what happened to them and find them. So thousands of mass graves have been identified by this collective of mothers who literally search the countryside, going out in bands to look for their relatives. Um, you know, little by little, they have created a whole mechanism to search for graves. They go out into the fields and bury, uh, like, like kind of a stick, and when they take it out, they identify if there are bodies buried by the smell of the stick. <laughs> Why? When a missing person was reported to the authorities, authorities just didn't act. They were negligent and never looked for the missing people reported. Those women took action and started doing what the state couldn't or didn't want to do. Through a lot of uh, pressure driven by the social society and these um, mothers, the government has now created a national search commission. Ironically, they have been trained by the collectives of mothers because now they have the expertise in how to search the bodies of the missing people. Wow. I um, Can you like add a bit on that? The National Search Commission and... Yeah. Moreover, these collectives are actually peacemakers. They are so brave. They have even called the Organized Crime for Peace Agreements to let them search on some territories to find the bodies of the missing people and have succeeded a couple of times. I would say this is a successful example and one to be proud of. Nevertheless, I am ashamed. Uh, mothers should not be doing what is a state obligation, granting peace and dignity for all of their citizens. However, these women have done it. Um, thank you about all that. Actually, I just, I'm very interested in know a bit more about the National Search Commission. I'm just so surprised that the civil society, the civil society in this case, sorry, is teaching the state, you know, how to do their job. For me, that's crazy because, you know, the state should be the one telling us what to do. I mean, providing us the security, but in Mexico, it's otherwise. Yeah, it's like, it's actually a meme in Mexico. Like, try to explain politic Mexican politics to a foreigner and they will laugh because it's very bizarre. Like, how come actually the mothers who are looking for their relatives have prepared the authorities on how to do yeah. it? But yeah, so actually the National Commission uh, Search Commission is a very recent one. It is not that strong. Actually, the commissioner who was Carla Quintana um, mm -hmm. quitted this year, last year, sorry, mm -hmm. because there is like no institutional back on this commission. It doesn't have the resources. Mm. And also the government, it's not very convenient for them to find 
okay. so much griefs of missing people because that would be an estate failure, like recognizing, yeah, recognizing that, that yes. has failed. So yeah, so it's almost like this commission. I mean, it, it's there, mm-hmm. but the ones who are working for searching the the missing bodies, it's the mothers, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah. Can I believe Crazy, it? Crazy, right? But, yeah. yeah. But it's, but it's Mexico. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Mexico, Mexico. Yeah. Mexico, Mexico. The magical Mexico, that's what we're saying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, anyway, um, changing a bit the subject. As a feminist woman, you know, I can undoubtedly say that many rights uh, can now be exercised in Latin America thanks to the tremendous work behind the Mexican feminist movement. And I can also say the Argentinian one, you know. All Latin America. Yeah, know? but I think the Mexican um, feminist movements and also the Argentinian one are like the strongest. What do you think? I mean, well, I, I have like that opinion. I, I, I would yeah. say that uh, uh-huh. it's not a competition. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, not, not, not not for criticizing you, but yeah. I mean, like every region has their own challenges, and yeah, I like think the agenda. That, of course. Yeah, but I I think the region has become very feminist and has, uh, you know, like are fighting for our rights. But I so think it's a dominant effect. And I think yeah, kind yeah, of started true. in Mexico and also Argentina, like the strongest nations in terms of feminism. Yeah. Like the feminist agenda in this case. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, what do you think are the main uh, achievements uh, that for example, you think this feminist agenda has accomplished not only for your country, but for the region? And what is to be improved? Um, yes, just adding on what you said before, actually Argentina, mm-hmm. when they started with their sexual and reproductive rights, yeah. they call it the... Um, the green wave, Maria yeah, Verde. The green wave, yeah. And what we are saying in Latin America is that the green wave started in Argentina and it's going yes. to get up until Mexico. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think we are a whole region fighting for our rights, but yes. yeah, it's true. So I don't know, like sometimes I feel very frustrated and hopeless by the scenario we are facing. Nonetheless, when I look back and observe what we have done, uh, I think we have progressed little by little. So women now have the right to vote, to go to schools, to divorce, to join the labor force, to contraceptives and more. And this would sound like basic rights and obvious ones. However, we should not take them for granted. There were women who fought for them. And moreover, I'm very proud to say that Mexico, along with Argentina, are a worldwide example in how to fight for sexual and reproductive rights. Uh, For instance, the Mexican Supreme Court has ruled that the criminalization of abortion is unconstitutional. And in Argentina, the right to abortion is now recognized by law. So as a matter of fact, when Roe versus Wade was reversed in the USA, mm-hmm. and the, the podcast of the New York Times show in an episode how Mexican women were achieving their sexual and reproductive rights and accepted that this was a very successful case um, that should drive the attention of USA. So we have also made um, somehow very visible how violence crosses us mm-hmm. and have pushed for an agenda that can translate now into public policies and laws. So, for instance, feminicide was not recognized as a crime in Mexico, but it was obvious that something was going on as many women were murdered in very violent and sexist matters. And now it is recognized by law and in many Latin American countries. I don't know if in Ecuador it is also recognized by law. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So we have also recognized in law political um, gender-based violence, which limits, nullifies, or impairs the effective exercise of women in political spheres. And we have also recognized um, digital violence, meaning that yeah. when someone posts sexual content without um, your consent, yeah, and that is unlawful. So I would say that many women in Latam are taking the streets and shouting for their justice, for shouting for their rights. And the job is not done yet. We have a huge agenda to meet in order to grant our rights. So many challenges still linger. So for instance, even though feminicide is now recognized, impunity is something to overcome so we can achieve justice. Those have to be enforced since discrimination and violence is still a woman's daily take. 
and also inter intersectionality should be also meet. Mm -hmm. These uh, rights uh, have to reach every corner of LATAM. So for indigenous women, for Afro women, for poor women, etc., they should have a seat in the table to discuss their needs. We cannot speak for them. They should be heard. And another aspect that should be improved, I think, it is the right of transgender women who are more vulnerable to yeah. discrimination and violence, especially since their rights are diminished even by us, cisgender women. So, yeah, we have a lot of challenges to overcome. You know, um, last week I was talking with another Mexican friend. Uh, she told me that the feminist agenda in Mexico was too white. And at the way, at what point, many months ago, we also had this conversation and you kind of agreed. So what do you think now? I mean, you're telling me all this. Do you mm -hmm. still agree with that? I think? Uh, I, it's a very complicated question, but I do agree with your friend. Mm -hmm. So I would actually like first to state that I speak of feminisms in plural because mm -hmm. it is not a, a homogenized movement. Yeah. There are many branches of feminism. So there is like radical, liberal, Africa, um, indigenous ecofeminism and more branches of fem uh, feminism. So it's a huge movement, are very huge movements. So I just sadly believe that feminisms is losing some power when it once was a fierce movement that pushed hard for our rights. However, it seems like now a mainstream thing to do, like, look at me, I'm cool because I'm a feminist instead of a political yeah. force. So when we speak about white in Mexico, mm -hmm. we have to understand that it has to uh, a little to do with our skin color and more with our mindset. So white for us means a culture that denies discrimination and that it is classist, elitist, and so on. So sadly, this mindset remained in feminism. Some of these women are exploiting the violence we are crossed uh, by for their own purposes and agendas without questioning actually the status quo. So they are denying, for instance, women's labor rights because they still want to exploit domestic workers. They deny, deny transgender uh, women their rights. It feels like the political approach now is to wear a cool t-shirt that says I am a feminist without any other political commitment. Um, it is also, you know, like white feminism is about romanticizing women. So I do believe in representation, but just a woman in power assures our rights as women. So many women in politics in Mexico are exploiting the feminist movement in her favor to ensure political positions while also perpetuating violent dynamics or are taking even comfort in the achievements made uh, through sorority to use it as an excuse to perpetuate systems that harms other women. So I think that feminism once was uh, used to question the status quo and transform it. We question power. We radicalize the world as it was. And um, if we do not take into account women from all the spectrum, I fear the movements will fail to succeed. I am not saying that privileged women are not allowed to participate in the movements mm -hmm. and call themselves feminism. Fem uh -huh. uh, we do not need moral police officers to accept feminist, uh, feminist or not. This is not a club. What <laughs> I'm saying is that actually we all should question our roles. Yeah, I completely agree. And speaking of, you know, this white feminism, something that I truly don't like when I watch like some movies and for example, Barbie. <laughs> uh, yeah. They use a lot. We of can these, do another podcast about another that. Another about Barbie. Yeah. yeah, they use a lot of this word like empowering. You know, we have to empower women. We have to empower them economically. Blah blah blah. blah. Mm -hmm. So I I remember that you once told me like we don't need to empower anyone. I mean, we're very powerful. Yeah. What can you say about that? 
I actually do not agree with the word empowering yes. woman uh -huh. because it feels like women do not have power mm -hmm. and you are giving it to them. So it feels like... And who is giving power to them? Yeah. You know, like this white woman or like this Latina woman is giving power to another type so of person. So it's like, like white you know, woman giving yes. us power or is it yes. men giving us power? Exactly. <laughs> it also uh, underlies a kind of hierarchy because mm -hmm. who exactly. has the power is giving the power to the powerless. 100%. And I do not agree with that. I think mm -hmm. that... You know, in our women are already powerful. We do have our own power. So actually, this should be something more vertical without hierarchization. Is maybe vertical not, or horizontal? Uh, horizontal. Horizontal. Sorry, yes. yeah. uh -huh. It should be a horizontal, horizontal perspective, perspective yeah. where women actually we can accompany them in their own journeys, mm -hmm. in their own personal path, in realizing their value, their independence, their economic power, yeah. but not in a way that we should say like, oh, you're not powerful, then I will give you the power. So yeah. that, I don't know, I'm, I'm just feeling comfortable with that word. I think yeah, that yeah, actually yeah. it's a very wide feminism <laughs> perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I also consider that. Yeah, so, hey, so as this is the Oxford Policy Podcast, I want to, yeah, I want to dim it to the idea that how can we make gender violence a priority matter in the world of public policy? I guess it's because, you know, some traditional views sometimes can paralyze this discussion and are resistant to acknowledging the severity of the problem. It happens a lot in Latin America, you know, it's a very conservative region. So what can you say about that? <sighs> Denise, I do not have an answer yet <laughs> because that is what I'm trying to discover here yeah. and now. <laughs> so, you know, it is a very polarized world and it seems that we have lost, you know, the capacity of listening to people who do not think the same way we do. And But actually, that is a very dangerous approach as well, because we're losing opportunities to build bridges and uh, negotiate little by little our necessities. It is really challenging because it is also very exhausting. You know, like how come we are negotiating our most basic rights, like the right of a life free of violence? But what I have learned so far is to feel comfortable with uncomfortable uh, conversations, uncomfortable ideas. We really, um, we really need not to be allies with the people who already agree with us, but rather we need allies in the most uncomfortable spaces. Agree. Yeah. So I do agree that some views are so traditional and reluctant to change, and maybe that is why tackling gender-based violence is so hard. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I think we need to build bridges while also drawing limits. I will not negotiate if a woman has the right to live or does not. So can we all agree on that? Okay, so perfect. That would be a starting point. Now, maybe we can negotiate on the best way of granting this right. So I think it's not an easy task, but yeah. conversations need to be taken. Yeah, I mean, to achieve rights. I mean, that's never oh. an easy task, <laughs> especially no, when never. it comes to women. And I it's mean, also really exhausting. Like how many years we have fight for this. Like, yes, I know. But we have to keep going. That's why yeah. you're here. We're here. We have to keep, you know. Yeah. Arguing class. <laughs> that's like that's a start. Yeah. Um, anyway, in my case, for example, um, I connected with the feminist movement only a few years ago. I used to be very conservative. <laughs> so therefore I believe it is possible to change the mindset if you truly want it, you know. And following that, what beliefs or preconceptions do you have to unlearn to combat gender violence rightly? So first of all, welcome to feminism, Denise. Mm -hmm. We were waiting for you. <laughs> and this is actually a very personal answer. I was not a feminist before as you mm -hmm. uh As the same as you. Yeah. And I used to think like, oh, these feminists are ruining everything. I want a man to open the door for me. <laughs> I want. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yes. <laughs> But let, let me just finish my, my answer. Sorry. So, yeah. 
I mean, uh, this was like kind of a shallow thought. I'm not saying you're shallow, but yeah, yeah. like little did I know that being a gentleman is actually not in contrapos uh, contraposition exactly. of feminism. So I do agree if you want a man to open that door for you. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. That's your choice. So yes. why would I, um, you know, <laughs> criticize that? It's fine. Yes. But, you know, feminism is rather a political movement that pursues equality and freedom for both women and men. So as I told you from the beginning, I was sexually abused when I was a teenager and have lived, um, unfortunately, a lot of sexual violence and grew up with the same domestic violence. And suddenly I realized my story was not an isolated story, but rather the shared story of Mexican women. Yes. So feminism, feminist, uh, feminists were shouting in the streets for me, for all of us, for yes. all of us. They were not ruining anything. They were protecting me. Mm -hmm. How could I turn my back on them when they would, without any hesitation, prevented my sexual abuse? When I listened to them shouting in the streets, yeah. I thought they were shouting for me. for me. They were protecting me. How could I turn my back to them? So actually, <laughs> once you accept you're a feminist, it means a lot of deconstruction on your perception, and it is a never-ending story. Oh my you God, know. yeah, I agree with that. All day you have to question. Test. It is never an end. Yeah. So I had to question even my personal relationships, my role in society, my aims in life, my privileges, and so on. I actually grew up in a Catholic school for only girls mm -hmm. and was educated to be a wife and trained to understand that my whole role in life was that. So you could imagine the catharsis it meant to face myself with ideas of feminism that question everything I learned. However, I feel so liberated and happy now that I have questioned my role in life. I mean, yes. otherwise I would be, I wouldn't be here, actually. Oh. I wouldn't make it to Oxford. That's so lovely to hear. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think when I entered, like, not only like, the feminist movement, but, like, when I start kind of analyzing my reality and embracing it through a feminist perspective, yeah. like, my personal pressures just went away. And I think Completely. feminists... Uh, for that. Don't you Thank feel you more so liberated? Yeah, yeah, I'm liberated. Like, I'm fi I finally, I'm finally liberated. Um, cool. But we're running out of time, although <laughs> this conversation is so enlightening and I adore talking to you. Um, do you envision a more positive future for the women in Mexico? Well, I hope so. It is very hard to keep our hopes high when on a daily basis, news are full of feminicides, rapes, women disappear, trafficking of yeah. women, and other atrocious acts that actually sound very violent now that I am in the other part of the world. Yes. It doesn't feel like a natural thing to do, but in Mexico it feels like daily basis. Yeah, like a daily basis. I feel yeah. the same way. Like here, I the news, I'm like, you know, completely surprised. Like, oh my God, I cannot believe this happened. But when I was in Ecuador, I'm like, oh, you know. Every day. Another woman, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Another at least regular I'm, day I'll, in Latin America. At least they're not three. They're just one. I mean, it's just one. Sorry. I'm, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So... I don't know if we have, um, uh, you know, a more positive future. I hope so. And I do not know if I will die witnessing a better world for women, but surely I will die trying to build it. Wow, that was a very powerful ending. Thank you so much, Mariana, for your time. Um, please prepare yourself for the next episode about <laughs> narcoculture, Netflix. Yeah, I, I would love <laughs> women. that. Yeah, 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 of course. Thank you, thank you so much. And thank you, all you, for listening to us. Have a great day. <laughs>